the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. All right, it's Wine Women Radio Hour, which I can't even get out of my mouth. Wine Women Radio Hour. Welcome, listeners. We really appreciate you are with us today. I'm Marcia Maycumber, one of your co-hosts from Wine Women. I'm here today with Lisa Adams-Walter. Hello, Lisa. Hi. It's great to have you here. Misty Rodebush-Kane. Hi, listeners. Cheers. And hope you're grabbing a glass and getting ready for some fun conversations. Woohoo! So uh, we've all been on a corona hiatus, getting back to things, uh, getting us back in into gear and with new technology we're zooming our podcast um because we are still sheltering in place um but just getting into the mode of uh, starting to open up the economy and particularly opening up personal connection at least six feet apart with a mask uh, <laughs> so uh this remains the safest way for us to continue forward with our podcast and so that's what we're going to follow and today we have a really exciting program with a lot of really cool guests because today we're going to be talking with Lucia Albino Gilbert and John C. Gilbert, authors of Women Winemakers Personal Odysseys. Now, if the name Gilbert and Women Winemakers sounds familiar to you, they started initially with some research. They're researchers by profession, as well as being professors at Santa Clara University and with uh, U, U Texas. I don't have it right in front of me. University of Texas, Austin. Austin, there you go. <laughs> I had Austin in my head, but I wasn't sure if it was the University of Texas. Anyway, um, researchers and professors at those two universities together, which I think is kind of dual universities, which is kind of cool. But those of us in working in the wine industry, particularly women, heard of their initial research into how many women winemakers are the primary lead or head winemakers at wineries across the state of California. We heard about this, I wanna say about eight years ago, maybe something like that. And they were doing their research and we all kind of wondered because there really wasn't any historical gathering of this information. All we had a sense of back then was women as head winemakers were few and far in between. And you two, Lucia and John, were the first to really put some numbers attached to our gut instincts. What would you like to tell our listeners about your initial findings and how you got into this research? Well, we got into the research because we had heard that California's women were ahead of the curve and were already shattering the glass ceiling in the area of lead women winemakers. And because I have studied women in male-dominated fields my whole career, particularly women in science fields, applied science similar to winemaking, we thought this was wonderful, a wonderful chance 
to see how they did it. And so that we could share that information with other fields, especially different areas of engineering. And of long and short of it is we couldn't find very many. And so when we couldn't find any, we thought, hmm, are there any? And that led to our first very large study, really. We had to develop our own database and put into that database every winemaker, every winery in California. And then we literally just looked up and counted or visited wineries because sometimes it's hard to know who the lead winemaker is. And so that was an amazing study. It was picked up all over the world, which is nice. Um, and I think just in itself was important because it was a wake-up call um, for some of the industries that I also thought, think and that it was confirming for women themselves because they knew there weren't that many women and to be able to put a number to it, uh, I think was helpful. So that led to our saying, we need to have people know who these women are. So then we developed our extensive website on Women Winemakers of California and every single woman that we could find was put on that website with a bio profile and connected to wherever she was crafting wine. And we keep that up to date. So um, it's, uh, we just updated it uh, during the coronavirus and we had nothing else to do. <laughs> so for our listeners who are going, oh my God, a resource database, first of all, all you have to do is go to womenwinemakers.com. That will take you immediately to the website. Um, if you're on Facebook, you can go to Women Winemakers of California and Beyond um, in the search bar in Facebook, and that will um, send you to your webpage on Facebook um, where you post updates on women who are currently enjoying um, some recognition uh, or new developments. Uh, I think the the thing that stood out to me in your initial research that got my attention was that you came to the conclusion that of the head winemakers in California, only 10% were women. That's a pretty small percentage when we're supposed to be equal. <laughs> What did, were you surprised by your own findings or did you kind of had a gut instinct that it was a fairly small number? Do you want to jump in? Jeff? I, I would say we were surprised. Uh, we had really no idea how many women would be lead winemakers in the state, but we thought it would be higher than 10% because the information we had from UC Davis, for example, about enrollments in the Indian Viticulture program were nearly 50-50 women and men. Right. So 10% We were shocked. <laughs> was a low number for us. Right. Yeah. And I have to say, I think around the time you were starting your research was when I first heard from one of our guests who's waiting in the wings or rather waiting in another Brady Bunch cell as it works here in Zoom, 
uh, Zelma Long. Zelma uh, has a very long history in the wine industry. Uh, one of our trailblazers um, here. And Zelma, you appeared on a panel of women winemakers, I think 10 years ago that I attended and talked about, I think a little bit how when you went to UC Davis that it seemed like the balance of men and women going through the enology courses was about the same. So that would make you think that there would, that balance would continue out in the real world, but that wasn't true. What, well, what was your experience just, with that shift? Well, first of all, just to clarify, at UC Davis, there were 25% women in, in studying enology because there were only four of us. Right. <laughs> so, and I think it takes a while for the, you know, whatever industry, for that wave to flow through. And especially as the wine industry has gotten very professional and very large, um, it also takes a while to work up to head winemaker. But I want to ask Jack and Lucia. Uh, what is the current status now in terms of percentage? Yeah, so it's if you do it overall California, it's about 12%. Um, but there are yeah. certain regions that are much better. Um, so uh, Santa Clara County, uh, Napa, and Sonoma would be the three. And then you have others like Sierra Foothills, Mendocino, Southern California, very low. And the increase is even in Sonoma, Napa, Santa Clara County is not dramatic. It's still under what, 15 percent? Right. Yeah, between 14 to 16 percent. Hmm. Yeah, right. I would think as many women as have gone through, there would be more female lead winemakers. Now, it's, it's a little uh, distressing that there's only 14 or 15%. On the other hand, there are so many more internationally, not a higher percent, but when I was first traveling, there were hardly women winemakers anywhere. And the two of you have identified uh, quite a number where, where girls are inheriting the winery and the winemaking from their fathers. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's still movement, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I haven't tried to analyze why it is what it is now. Well, I think that that makes for important areas of study. So in one of the studies we report in the book, we tried to look at what are the factors that at least correlate with whether a woman is hired uh, when there are openings. And one of the things we saw, number one, is that there aren't a lot of openings. That if you have a really good winemaker, that person stays 30 years, um, <laughs> 40, how, <laughs> but for a long time. So, so there's not uh, a lot of turnover. And the other is that um, 
who gets hired, we found that more, there was more of a shift from having a male winemaker to a female winemaker than in the past, than, than the other pattern of male to male. Um, and that the pattern of having a male and, and hiring a female was more likely in a smaller winery uh, than in a corporate winery. That was my question. I was wondering about the larger size wineries and what correlations were made because I could imagine that it would be even more dismal in the, the larger corporation settings. That's, that's the case. And there are explanations for that, which I won't go into, but again, we need more research, but that um, we know that um, in very large organizations, it's much harder for women in all fields to move up. That is really hard. I feel like we are, you know, 20 years behind most other industries. Our previous um, guest, (laughs) Papa Pietro, you know, she was, you know, came up the the software ranks and I come from telecommunications and, you know, back in the early nineties, there was, I mean, obviously a, a huge amount of disparity, but over the last two decades, um, the industries around us have done a fantastic job at promoting women leaders. And um, it is a little discouraging and disparaging to see such dismal numbers in, you know, winemaking and in the wine industry overall, because it, it's not only in winemaking. I mean, it's also flows through to our distributorship and to lead positions within wineries and winery C-level executives and up. So I think it's an interesting study that you guys have started. It sure is. And I want to make sure that our listeners know, um, you know, the, the context of what we're working with here. Um, John and Lucia undertook this research initially, and they've done several subsequent studies. And then this also involved into this brand new book that's out now, Women, Winemakers, Personal Odysseys. And so besides themselves as the authors, they traveled the globe to interview women winemakers everywhere from here to New Zealand. Um, so really, you, you covered the gamut to see not only what was it like for women in California, uh, but women further beyond. And if you're hearing the little phone thing in the back, that's that's the normal sequence of dealing with the Zoom calls. <laughs> Sorry. Because we're all juggling more things now than we were before. So um, it's just understandable to deal with that. So we've got with us um, other contributors to the book. Zelma Long, who we've been talking with, um, wrote the foreword to this new book by the Gilberts. And then we also have interviewees who are depicted in the book. Uh, Shelley Raffinelli is with us. Hello, Shelley. Hello. Hello. And Lane Tanner. Say hello, Lane. Hi. Hi, there she is. Great. So I want to hear a little bit because we've also got a nice generational change here um, across the boards from the women winemakers depicted in the book about what some of your experiences were and maybe what you learned from Lucia and John during the interview process. Um, Shelly, let me start with you for a second. What was the whole experience like about being interviewed for the book and what stands out with you from a story point of view? Well, it was, um, 
I mean, when they first came to interview me, that which was a while back, um, times have definitely changed. And back then, I don't think that there was maybe more than a couple women in Dry Creek Valley winemakers at the time. And now I'm surrounded by them. So it's, it's really neat to see that progression. Um, but it, it definitely, at the time when they were doing the interview with me, I was, I was, I was younger and just come on board and working still kind of under my dad. And now I'm like kind of, you know, doing it all myself. So it's, um, it's, it's, it was fun to look through the book and see all the names of those women winemakers that I've looked up to and, um, you know, maybe had some personal interaction along the way, um, whether it was way back then or, you know, more recent. Um, but it's, it's just really interesting to, and I felt like there was more of a progression, but then reading the book, it was kind of shocking to see that there wasn't a higher percentage of us out there kind of at the head um, position of winemaker. So a real eye opener. Yes, uh, it was. Uh, let me let me back it over to the Chia and John. Anything in particular you remember about your interview with Shelly that stood out to you? Well, yes. I mean, because we were all. <laughs> yeah, I also want. It was quite a while back. It took us a while to decide how to focus the book um, because it was so much. Uh, and so I do want to mention that we we. Um, started interviews with women saying, how did you know that you love wine? And mm -hmm. I still have your answers written down. <laughs> um, but, um, and then we wanted to know about career paths because mm -hmm. in order to have a career, you have to have a vision for yourselves and how do you have a career path? And so the book is divided this, after we do the trailblazers in the first section of the book, the second section of the book, is all women who entered the field after 1980. So they entered the field then and became the lead or head winemaker. And there were four career paths. Uh, the family career path, which Shelley followed, mm -hmm. um, the sensory career path, which is what Ann Noble teaches. And I know Shelley took her class. I did, that was a great uh, class. <laughs> and the, the science pathway, which was what, um, you want to jump in? Uh, which Zama took, uh, and um, in which, uh, uh, with, which Zama and Lane both took. And then there's the enology pathway, which I guess Zama could have taken the enology pathway. When we interviewed um, Zama, we didn't ask her about her pathway. We did that for women who um, entered the field after 1980. And so each of these chapters, talks about women uh, who followed that pathway and who are from different cultures. And so we, I don't know how you felt about this, but we paired Shelley with a woman, another wonderful young woman um, from Italy. Uh, and you, you two could be sisters. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and tried to talk about, you know, how the cultural influences yes. of of the grandfathers and so forth on their career paths mm -hmm. and I don't know how you felt about that and if you felt we took too many liberties 
No, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I've, I'm lucky I had the opportunity to step in the footsteps of my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandmother. Um, but yeah, I mean, family, tradition, it all went in line. And um, yeah, being Italian, if you're familiar with that culture, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're pretty set in their ways. And my poor dad, he had three girls. So um, he's, <laughs> he didn't know how to deal with all of us. Um, he's now accepting that, you know, wait, you know, my sister and I are pretty much running the show. Um, but it's not what tradition kind of dictates. So, um, yeah, but, um, it, it is, I think he's accepted it now and he's kind of turned us loose. So <laughs> hopefully that's a good thing. <laughs> Bravo. Well done. Well, I want to ask, um, our last guest that we haven't introduced Lane Tanner. Thank you for being here, Lane. Sure. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you. Uh, so, in hearing these stories between Shelley and, and Lucia and John's uh, observations, what do you want our listeners to know about your path into the industry? Well, you know, I, I literally, I fell into this industry. It wasn't uh, something I set out to do. I, I, one day I went in to help somebody do some chemistry at a winery and literally by noontime I was the enologist. <laughs> wow. But you know what? This is such a fun path to have. So what the heck? It did work. Pretty, pretty cool. So yeah, amazing. And and Lucci and John I just want to check that Lane a mic is working okay. Oh yeah, maybe be a little closer, Lane. It's a it's a little challenging with the Zoom stuff because we're all using our own computers. I Zoom, so I'm a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be nervous with us. <laughs> we're almost entirely all girls here, so John gets to be an honorary girl for the moment. So, uh, all, almost all women in wine. Uh, so Lane, Lane, tell, besides just kind of accidentally stumbling into this, once you made the decision to jump into this as your career, were there any particular moments where you're like, why is there such a, a, a lack of women uh, going through this industry? Did, did that consciously hit you or did you just kind of plow ahead? Well, I got in, into the industry in 1980, and I, I came from air and water pollution. I was a remote site field operator. That actually was a much more male-dominated situation than the wine industry. So, so I, it never occurred to me that, you know, that there should be more women. Also, back then, it was a real manual labor job. So uh, your average woman, I mean, I was pretty stocky and, and strong, but I wouldn't say that job was for every woman out there which, you know, mm -hmm. now we've got forklifts, we've got barrel racks, all that stuff. You know, that wasn't as prevalent in 1980. So, so uh, I wasn't shocked by the lack of women. I, I really, it, it didn't really show up on my radar. One of our previous listeners also commented on, um, you know, she's has her own winery and she commented on the forklifts. So even the forklift seats, you know, she had trouble reaching the pedals. And so she had to make her own adjustments so that she could move her, her racks and her barrels around. Yeah. yeah. Makes, uh, yeah. makes me think of childhood. 
you know, putting, putting telephone books on, on a dining room chair seat um, so that you can sit up at the grown-ups table. <laughs> yeah, that type of thing. So obviously forklifts, for some reason, were not made for women to be at the grown-ups table, but everybody has adapted. Um, matter of fact, I, I want to go back to stories I've heard um, from uh, Zelma's background that you were told, oh, you know, you can't have a career in wine because, you know, the, the equipment and the barrel, they're all too heavy. Women can't do this. Uh, did you immediately just say to yourself, I'm ignoring this commentary or, or did it kind of stick in your craw? You know, <clears throat> when I started, I didn't really encounter that. My professors at Davis were really supportive. My fellow students' view is what they were, were very supportive. I, I got a job by chance at Robert Mandotti for Harvest. And it was just, it, it, I just didn't think about other women because I was so busy with what I was doing. And I, I really relate to what Lane said. It was really fun. You know, it was fascinating. <clears throat> I have a science background, so I had some idea of what was going on. Uh, Mike Gergich was the, my mentor, and he was the guy I worked for, and he had a wonderful, profound um, sense of taste and intuitive winemaking. You know, so winemaking is just really such an interesting business. It was great to have more women, but I hired a lot of women when I was at Robert Mandavi, and not because they were women, just because they were um, eager and anxious and qualified and hardworking and just terrific. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great philosophy. You know, I love it to hear when people are hiring folks for the merit of their credentials and who they are in lieu of, you know, what, even what sex they are, or, you know, all of these other factors. It's great to hear that. So what, what are you all seeing now as some of the differences? Um, I think Shelly, easily can be the newest one to the, to the crowd here. Uh, not, to, uh, not to say anything negative about our, our other ladies who are guests, but uh, let's just say you're more seasoned. You have more vintages uh, in your background than Shelly, literally, in your background. What are some of the changes that you're seeing that are shifting for women in the, in the industry, and particularly here's what I wanna look at, and maybe um, the doctors Gilbert can comment on this. Um, we're up to 12% women winemakers in the head winemaker position now in the North Bay and Santa Clara. But I think we're still only at 4% of women who own their own winery and are their own winemakers, so they're vintner winemakers, much smaller percentage, is, is the big difference between women being able to get ahead this access to money to start their own wineries? What do you, what do you all think? But I don't think that 4% figure is correct. I've seen it 
several times, and I think it's taken from our research. And I tried to get a correction published, but it's not the sort of thing people pick up. Well, let's um, do it now. <laughs> so anyway, I don't think that percentage is correct. I'll send you separately um, the, the, where that number likely comes from. Okay. <laughs> Definitely true, as lots of people have been working on this, it's, it's harder for women to get funding, to get so on. That's certainly all true. I'm just saying, questioning that 4% figure. Okay. All right. Um, Shelly, you stepped into, you know, ta a mm -hmm. takeover position, so it's not the same for you. No. No, it takes, I mean, it's a big investment to start a winery. I mean, you definitely need to have your own funds or trying to get those funds to start it. Um, but again, I was, I was lucky because um, it was, you know, a family-run business and my parents were looking for the help. Um, but it is, it's a huge, it's a huge challenge. It's not easy to, to upstart something. You've got to have the fruit, you've got to have the equipment, and then you make the wine, but you're not releasing it right away. You've got to sit on it and then you've got to market it and sell it. I mean, there's so many components to it. If I could, I would just love to make wine. That's all I want to do. It's all the other stuff that is, um, yeah, it, it, it's a little overwhelming, the selling, the marketing, um, I'm fortunate I don't have to travel um, to sell the wine. Um, if I do, it's, it's fairly locally. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not just one job. I think you're, you're doing multiple jobs if you want to start your own winery um, and, and, and move forward with that. Okay. Uh, let's, let's go around the room a little bit. Lane, what's your perspective on you know, women being able to own their own wineries, how difficult is it to move up in the ranks? You, you choose where you want to go with this. Right. Well, uh, for me, I, once I got into the industry, I realized that, that just to be happy and healthy, I needed to do it all by myself. And so I started my own winery and I was the only person <laughs> that was there. So I did all of that, you know, plus the sales and stuff. But the other thing we have to remember is in the 80s and early 90s, the winemaking was incredibly lucrative. It really was. It was a totally different beast. I mean, I made money. It was fun. <laughs> you know, things have changed there too. So, so now, you know, I, I kept my own, uh, my own winery for about 25 years. And then I just got out because there was no money to be had. Now I'm lucky to be back in the situation where I have a partner who is the monetary partner. Not only that, he does all the sales. I just make <laughs> mine. And so I've got like the best job in the world right now. Yeah, I yep. will. <laughs> I don't know how anybody does it anymore as far as actually making a living in this, in this business. It is not easy. It really is not easy any longer. I can see Shelly now going, that's what I want. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and I always, I always have to remind all our customers and stuff, it's, it's farming first and foremost. I mean, winemaking is a little bit more of a controlled environment, but um, the whole farming aspect is, um, you know, that's where it all starts. And that's a lot of uncontrolled things. Um, we're fortunate because we have um, most of all our own land and fruit. Um, 
and uh, my husband's a vineyard manager, so I'm sure that all works. <laughs> it's truly a family situation. <laughs> but yeah, that's a lot. There's a lot to be said with that, Lane. Yeah. Pillow talk about the vines. Oh, it's it's uh, it's business talk 24/7 in our house. <laughs> um, but we don't do a lot of talking at harvest because. I'm the one who kind of decides when to pick the fruit. He wants to pick it now. I'm sitting there saying, I don't have tank space, wait. Um, we, you know, we're kind of like, we just kind of pass each other for those three months until all the fruit's in and then, then we can reconnect. So <laughs> it's called working with family. Goodness. Well, Zelma, let's turn it over to you. You've, you've gone from everything from running a very large winery, Simi Winery, which you were president and winemaker, uh, the, then eventually you went to just doing your own. What, what are your thoughts on all of these elements? Well, I, I actually, I started at Robert McDuffie, and during that time period, uh, my husband and I started Long Vineyards, which was very small. Then I moved to see me. Uh, we got divorced. I remarried, and my husband and I started our winery that we run now in South Africa. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things I was thinking and listening. One is, um, if I, I heard this phrase, and I really love it. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. And for our South Africa project, there's three owners. Myself is the winemaking owner. My husband, who's a professional wine grower, mm -hmm. and our partner in South Africa, who is a sales and marketing guy. Uh -huh. Now that is really a you know, not too different from Shelley's experience, but it's really helpful. It is, it's, it's a complex business. And that's what makes it so interesting. The other thing I think is that it's, I mean, we're talking Napa and Sonoma. It's big business. It's big dollars. And many men and women have gone to outlying areas, the Sierras, Oregon and Washington, um, in been able with a small investment to start up a small project and then grow it. So you're not going to start Weimar here without a major investor. Absolutely makes sense. It's expensive here, uh, to put it politely, <laughs> as best we can. So I have a question. Because it seems to me when we talk about wineries, especially say in the, uh, in the last century, you know, in the 1990s, we're talking about people with equipment, we're talking about a winery like Raffinelli Winery. They have all their own equipment, they have their own vineyards and so forth. And now, at least as we track, you know, new people come, who come on and our winemakers and so forth, male or female, they have a label. They um, they work at a, they have things done at someone else's winery. Um, they um, source their grapes. So I don't know if that's a new model that's more this century, or is that also uh, prominent 
uh, say, Zama, at the time that you were at CME? No, I think it's something uh, outsourcing everything essentially started in the 1990s. And it, uh, when there is a uh, surplus of grapes like there is now, it's easier for people to buy good quality grapes at an affordable price and then uh, go to a custom crushed winery. Uh, many wineries that are now good sized started with that model. Uh -huh. And then evolved. That evolved. Huh. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Really fascinating to hear that. And of course, uh, some of this is unique to the US. Uh, if you go, for example, to France, uh, many of the wineries have been around for centuries. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them, um, a little bit like Shelley, have been, you know, family institutions where it's passed historically from father to son and finally we're starting to see some father to daughter and uh, mother to daughter um, transitions so um, here's to a little bit around the globe matter of fact uh, what what did you find in that regards when you were doing your worldwide travels for the personal odysseys book doctors gilbert about that uh, spain well, we found that there was a mixture of ways that people became controlling in their wineries, and a lot of it was through family, passed down from yes. father to daughter, and often that was the reason. The reason was that they had no no sons in the family, so by default, it went to mm -hmm. daughter, and it was going to remain in family. Well, one of the things that we learned in Spain, I'm sorry to cut you off, Shelley, um, back to the equipment and whatever, is that according to the country's laws, you're not allowed to use someone else's equipment when you make your wine. And that was just a huge difference from the U.S. Yes, the, the, that, that's a good point. That you Certainly, at least in the Rioja area, you have to have your own bottling line can't have some company provide bottling uh, sources as many wineries in the U.S. do. They, the bottling truck comes in, the wine gets bottled, not in the Rioja area. You have to have your own bottling system. So the mobile popular here in the North Bay doesn't even exist in the Rioja. That's true. That's true. Wow. Lots of changes there. Lots of changes. But I cut off Shelly. She was going to say something and I interrupted her. Oh, oh no. I was just, I was, I was going to comment on that's, that's exactly how it happened. My um, great grandmother came over from Italy because her brothers were going to get everything and she uh, wasn't going to get anything. So that's why she made the trek to the U.S. And that's why we're here is, um, again, it was a cultural thing, an Italian thing. So, um, yeah, so we kind of owe it all to her. She was brave enough to uh, sail over and travel from East Coast to West Coast. And, you know, she was the one who basically taught my great-grandfather how to grow grapes and make wine, you know? So uh, the strength, it's just, I mean, 
you know, what she had to go through and what, you know, I look back and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't complain at all. It's not as, it, it's not as tough as it was back then. <laughs> wow. Shelly, um, I'm grasping at trying to remember the story. So was that back in like the 20s? Uh, this is early 1900s. She came over in like 1903. Wow. Mm-hmm. At the age of that like 18. Brave. Yes. Very brave. <laughs> and all of that. I, I think that story reflects what we felt when we talked to all of these women who are lead winemakers. They have a lot of, of self-confidence, a vision for themselves. They're willing to take risks and they'll just push forward whatever the challenge. It's very impressive to talk to these women. Well, John, that leads me naturally to the next question that I had very well. You talked about some um, very important characteristics, a lot of confidence, willing to take risk, uh, having a vision going forward. I want to ask each of our women winemaker guests, kind of how you feel about those topics or other characteristics that you think are really important to help propel you forward in your success and maybe what what you want to either say to you, to your younger self if you're younger mm-hmm. self or here now or or women coming up in the industry who wants to dive in first oh. i i will <laughs> only <laughs> only because um i've learned a lot um, I'm a control freak and, um, that's, that's come into, that's actually been really good for me in the cellar. I'm a clean freak. Um, but what I've learned above all, um, is a good multitasker. I mean, yeah, I've got the passion and my homework is tasting wine nonstop. But when I became a mom, that is, that was, uh, kind of a redefining moment because school starts when harvest starts and, um, you know, you, you now have someone else to think about and winemaking and grape growing is not a nine to five. It's definitely a passion because it's a way of life. Um, you don't check in and check out. So, um, definitely a good multitasker because you've got to be doing a lot of different things all the time. And raising a family is, um, is a challenge, I think, for, um, a woman winemaker. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Who wa- who wants to jump in next? Oh, I will. Lane. You know, uh, definitely. I chose not to have children, and and one of the reasons is because I could never figure out what you're supposed to do with them during harvest. Sometimes <laughs> 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 no. I, I just the only thing I do through harvest is harvest and hope my dogs are alive at the end yep. of it. That's it. So my hats off to you. Yeah, there is a sense of mom guilt, but I was very fortunate. It's called grandma. <laughs> I can't survive without my mom, right? She was definitely there at harvest for everything. I mean, I hate to say this, but one of my my, my big thoughts always was if I had a wife, I would have had children. <laughs> I was in the industry. And so, yeah, you know, double our house falls apart. Everything falls apart. But mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter because we're, we're doing what we love. And, and yeah, wine, it's, it's 24-7. And that's, that's one of the funnest parts. Definitely. Wow. Um, Misty had to step out to, I think, take another call. And Misty has uh, her own parcel of children. And I've asked her about what it's been like um, homeschooling them and juggling her career as, as director of marketing for St. Supery during the shelter in place requirements. And she definitely said, 
um, without her dad, who had a teaching certificate at one time to help out. Um, she'd be really sunk. And also, evidently, mm -hmm. her daycare service um, was deemed essential services um, during the pandemic. So her youngest daughter, she's been able to take to daycare. She, she said, without these support systems, she never would have been able to have done her job during this whole period during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so I, I can definitely see Lane, how you'd be going, how do you juggle all of this? It doesn't <laughs> seem humanly possible. Yeah. Lisa, you've had your daughter home from college. I have, and that's been a big, um, surprise. <laughs> it's her <laughs> freshman year and literally her dorm room was moved out and recreated back in our home. And it, you know, it's been challenging because neither of us anticipated it. And I have to really take a step back and remember that she left home and she's not the same person that she was when she left home. So that's, that's been challenging, but it's, it's actually been going pretty well. There are, I think it's been a, I'll look back on it as some unexpected time with her and her young adulthood that I didn't anticipate that I would have. So it's, it's, it's been okay, but it has been challenging and it is tough for women, you know, just managing, you know, I'm a single mom, so it's, it is tough doing it on your own. I feel, I feel that pain. I can't even imagine having children and managing the harvest. <laughs> that would be, it's bad enough on the PR side of the wine business, you know, but like mm -hmm. that's something that would just be crazy with grapes coming in all times of the day and not knowing what day it's going to be or when it's going to start or end and just months on end of that. It must be exhausting. Yes, definitely. There are quite a few women that I know that have kids and, but normally, so they're working, they have children, they live uh, like Shelly, they live at the winery. Mm -hmm. So there may be somebody else or they take their kids around with them, put them in school. Uh, Mary Edwards, I think, is a good example of a woman early on who had children and, and raised them. So, but I think that to to move up to a head winemaker position, it, it takes a lot of drive and desire and enjoyment. Because if you don't get the enjoyment, the other things don't count. And possibly, uh, maybe the short-term number of women um, as head winemakers is linked in some way to women having a family. So a young woman as an enologist thinking that she wants to work, she wants a family and she can't at least at that time go for the position with major responsibility. I mean, you know, you can raise children and then go. There's, life is long. Yes. Well, so. That's very interesting. And that's actually one of the, I guess, um, themes that we try to counter in the book. Because if you look at the lead women winemakers in California, many of them have a family um, with children. And many have spouses, whatever. And, and I think that the, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but the theme was, oh, women become enologists 
And because they want flexibility, mm -hmm. they want children, and so they'll stay there forever. There's no career path for them. And that they're perfectly happy with that because look what they get. They get their family. And we don't have to change anything about how we do things because they're perfectly happy. And I think that was more the case in the 80s and 90s than it is today. And there are a lot of changes today. Um, first of all, you know, laws have changed. We don't have sex as much sexual harassment. We still have it. Um, we have uh, work and family policy. Um, we have uh, all kinds of things. Plus, men are changing. Um, and if you read through the book, and, and some of these women I know you've met because they're on the panel last year, I mean, their husbands are very much involved in rearing the children, getting that food on the table. They aren't the viticulturists of the family. Um, so families make it work um, for what, if they want children or whatever. So I think that's a big change from 30 years ago. Uh, and I think that's a, personally, I think that's a really good change. It doesn't mean it's easy. Um, and and Shelly knows how hard it is. And I, she has a village. Uh, yes, thankfully. Yes, uh, but you, your passion is there. You have a vision. Um, there's, I've been to your winery a lot of times, and I just experience joy there. Um, it's just, it, that's at least our feeling about it. Yeah, and, 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 and just to add to that, it's like I work with my sister full-time here too, and all of a sudden, like, there's maybe a fifth generation coming on board. So that is such a motivating factor for us is, like, maybe our kids will want to join us in, in this industry at some point. So it is. It's very motivating to be able to share that with them and expose them. Nice. I think that's cool. Um, so I'm going to let you get that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're almost at the end of our time, and I want to ask each of our guests um, what they want to tell our listeners. So, uh, John and Lucia, what would you like our listeners to know about Women Winemakers Personal Odysseys, your book that's out right now that profiles many women in the wine industry? What would you like them to know? Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask, what can a reader expect in the book? What will they... What will they discover? Well, I think they will, uh, they will learn a lot about career paths and about how women uh, move forward in careers that are important to them. I think they'll also learn a lot about history and culture and how things change and don't change. Uh, I, personally, we think it's a fascinating book and it's gotten good reviews, uh, but it's not for everyone. You know, if you're going to the book because you're looking for recipes and what's a winemaker's favorite wine and, you know, what did you last read, it's not that kind of a book. All right. Good to know. Thank you. Zelma, you're in the middle of, well, you're not the middle. I think you said you were at the end of working on your dissertation, right? I, I, I've completed it. Yeah, I've completed it. So I'm Dr. Long now. What would you like our listeners to know about you and your wine and your, maybe your dissertation, maybe not your dissertation, I don't know. Well, 
I, I would like to encourage women to work in the wine industry. A lot of the time I spent is seeming was uh, purchasing grapes and developing vineyards. And I fell in love with the relationship between the vine, where it grows, what the climate is, and the flavors that come. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually quite unusual to have a food that is preserved. And so the differences you see in different areas where wine is grown, you can compare those differences where if you're trying to compare strawberries or cantaloupe or potatoes, it's harder. But it's incredibly, um, incredibly deeply satisfying and very intellectually stimulating. And it is the essence of teamwork because you just don't make wine by yourself. Woohoo! All right, that's a good note. How about you, Lane? What would you like our listeners to know? Well, I guess, you know, back to that baby thing. You know, my babies <laughs> are my wines. <laughs> you know, I, 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 when I'm in the cellar, I don't even let people top. I have to top my wines because I don't like other people touching my babies. But the nice thing about it is my babies are only a year or two years old when I get to release them into the world and, and really have new babies. So, so it is a very feminine thing and it, it makes sense to have women in this, this type of, of work. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I think we bring something very unique to it and uh, something very feminine. I mean, gosh, for years in the, in the early, early 80s and 90s, we weren't allowed to be feminine if we were winemakers. I was just like, no, if you're not macho, you can't be a winemaker. And it's so wonderful that now we can have femininity and winemaking together. And that's what I'd like to remind everybody. All right. Uh -huh. That's a good message. How about you, Shelley? Well, I'd, I'd have to agree with, with both Lane and Zelma. Um, and also, you know, it is, it's, it's one of the most rewarding things to be able to make wine from the ground up and put your name on it and, um, and then be able to share it with everyone because ideally you want your wine to tell a story and you want people to sit down and enjoy it, drink it and um, be able to socialize and, and make that connection. So we're all about making that personal connection. People, you know, letting them learn about the wines and um, yeah, that's, that's basically a really important part of it. All right. Pretty cool. Lisa, how about you? We're just about closing it out. We've passed the hour mark. I don't know. What do you want to say as a closing comment? Oh, well, I just want to say that I think it's really commendable and I have a lot of admiration for John and Lucia for embarking upon this research because I think it's going to be an important benchmark for the future for women coming up in the industry. Um, some of my daughter's friends are actually going to school, freshmen entering, studying enology and viticulture right now. And it's exciting for me to see what's happening with these next generations. They're going to be looking to all of you and, and looking at the research, I'm sure, um, to kind of figure out what their plans are. So um, I can't wait to read the book. I haven't done that yet. <laughs> and, I, and I want to remind our listeners, there's some really beautiful cover artwork involved with the book. 
And you can read on the website all about um, the history behind the illustration and the artist who did the illustration for the cover of the book and all that. A lot of really cool stuff. So uh, John and Lucia Gilbert, thank you so much for being on the show. Zelma Long, long time winemaker, thank you. <laughs> White Tanner, also a longtime winemaker, and Shelly Raffanelli, thank you so much for being on the Wine Women Radio Hour. Really appreciate well, thank you. Thank you. Can I, one more thing? Can I add one more thing? Yes. One, one of the benefits of this is we have um, Lane, who's not even close to us at all. Zama, I'm not sure where you are right now, but I know that Tia and John are in the Bay Area, I believe, you know, and, and this is we keep finding these silver linings, right? So it's really kind of cool with this new format that we can all be together and chat at the same time without trying to rush to Sonoma County to, to have an interview. So thank you to all of you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you to our listeners as well. Thank you all. Really appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.